Sick Boy Podcast is a health and comedy show about what it's like to be sick. Wait, is that right? How can illness be funny? You'd be surprised. Okay. Sick Boy is hosted by me, Brian Stever. And me, Taylor McGilvery. And myself, Jeremy Saunders. Come on in and join us to melt your heart, learn something fascinating, and bust a belly laugh. Trust us, you'll be glad you did. You can find Sick Boy on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your pods. This is a CBC Podcast. Hey, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Q. If you grew up in Canada in the late 80s and 90s, there are a few things that you might remember of that time, like Heritage Minutes, Peach Baskets, the computer game Cross Country Canada, where you had to pick up zinc in Kelowna and drive it to Moncton, and the 1985 miniseries Anne of Green Gables. That show, which of course was adapted from the books by Lucy Maud Montgomery, was massive. It was and still is one of the highest rated Canadian TV shows of all time. It won 10 Gemini Awards, an Emmy Award, and a Peabody. And for Megan Follows, who, after an exhaustive search of like 3,000 kids, got the part of Anne, her life changed forever. Lawful heart, her hair's as red as carrots. Dare you say I'm skinny and carrot? You're rude. So yeah, like I said, Canada aside, the show became an international hit, and Megan and Anne were everywhere. Megan goes on to star in the two follow-up films, Anne of Avonlea and Anne of Green Gables, The Continuing Story. So now, and and here's the reason I'm telling you all this background, 40 years after that life-changing miniseries, Megan is back with Anne. She directed a new Canadian Audible original series for audible.ca. It's called, of course, Anne of Green Gables, and it stars some pretty big Canadian heavyweights like Sandra Oh and Catherine O'Hara and Victor Garber. But what started out as a conversation about Megan's journey with Anne turned into Megan making me think about Anne of Green Gables in a completely different way. How radical it was then and how relevant it is now more than ever. I really love this. Here's my conversation with Megan Follows. How are you? Welcome to the show. I'm really good. That was very, very trippy hearing that clip. (laughs) Was that so? What went through your head when you listened to that just then? Um, So many things, kind of remembering doing it, thinking about Colleen Dewhurst, how amazing she was, uh, Patricia Hamilton, and how great it was uh, to play a character that, as a girl that got to express rage. I was I was watching you a little bit while I was doing it because I was worried. I don't know, Megan. Forgive me for this, but like I was worried that you were going to go like, oh, here we go. Or like, oh. I don't I don't know what your relationship is with Anne. You know, I love Anne. I have I uh, she and I have a great relationship. <laughs> we're tight. We're bosom buddies. Uh, I think she's an extraordinary character, and um, I always felt incredibly grateful to have played her and to have been introduced to a strong-willed, female-driven story where you got to be number one from the point of view of a story. Is that why you think the story is endured? Absolutely. I, I absolutely do. I think that what we can't underestimate is how oftentimes, um, as women, we are an appendage in a story. We're, we're not the backbone of the story. We're the sister, the girlfriend, the mother, the daughter... Sometimes we are, but it's few and far between. And also one who's not (laughs) her driving force and desire and need to belong and to be seen is for herself. 
And that is, I think, what still to this day resonates with many people, uh, regardless of gender. It's not about that. It's about the right to be, the right to have a place and to be seen. No hesitation when Audible comes calling, given your own history with it? No hesitation because <laughs> because um, this character and this world has come back into my orbit in, in another way, which um, I'm very excited about. So when Audible came, it was a bit, it allowed me to kind of do a deep dive back into the text. It's, it is an adaptation in a way because it's been adapted to be a, um, a drama. So it's multi-character. I myself have read Anne of Green Gables for um, many years ago. I, I read it on tape. And more recently I read, uh, and it, it is also on Audible, Emily of New Moon reading the novel, playing all the characters. Um, I think I did that in, in the early on in the pandemic. But it was a fantastic way to sit and look at the text and really, really appreciate how extraordinary Lucy Maud Montgomery's writing is. What, what did you notice that you hadn't noticed before? I noticed the subversiveness of the text. Really? I noticed, I always knew the humor because I always knew that Anne was funny. Yeah. I never saw, I never personally saw Anne as a, as a, as a, uh, no dish on Pollyanna because maybe that, I don't know Pollyanna too well, but I never, that the broad strokes of kind of the saccharine or the sweet or that understanding, that was never how I saw Anne. And, uh, and it's not what Anne and who Anne is. It's a very different, uh, exploration of what it means to be uh, a young girl, but really what it meant to be a woman. What 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 was yeah. the subversiveness you saw? Um, well, what's interesting is when you listen to the character of Anne, things that come out of her mouth. She's Lucy Maud was able to have that character say things because she was uh, basically considered a heathen by her community. She had no proper upbringing. She's considered trash. She has no uh, class status. Uh, she's an orphan. So basically, she's working by the age of five when you look at the text. So you're in a world where children are exploited and used and where the primary uh, goal for them, particularly for girls, is to get married. So if you don't have land and you don't have a title and you don't, you're, excuse, you know, <laughs> you're. Yeah, you're basically. gone. You know what? Once you play Anne, you're allowed to curse on the CBC. Can so I, you're, yeah, yeah, you're good. I, you're all right, you know. And and so what's so interesting is she slips in, uh, things come out of Anne's mouth that like horrify Marilla. But what you recognize is it's a beautiful way for these statements to be said. I mean, at one point she says she doesn't like God. She takes on the church. She wow, says, you know, yeah. God yeah. made my hair red and I've never cared for him since. I mean, that wasn't... The line that Anne says. That, and that, Marilla's like shocked. That's an interesting era to be writing... Um, a text that would question God in 1908, Absolutely. you know? Yeah, it is. And she's, uh, you know, would, would have been raised as a Presbyterian in that, a community that deeply believed in education. And even the girls were able to be educated up to a point. But it didn't matter that the author herself was the smartest child in that school. She did not, she wasn't going to get the benefits that were afforded her male cousins, for instance. So in her whole dynamic with Rachel Lynn, she's able to point out hypocrisy. Um, but it's because it's out of the mouths of babes as a character. Um, so Lucy Maud does some very um, sly, very funny. She And she uses humor. That's the, the curses off things because of that that wit. I want to go to a little bit of brass tacks here, because, okay. but, it, but, it, but it is related. It is related. Okay. 
because um, you, you played Anne in the in the miniseries. You're, you're directing the, you directed this Audible series. Michaela Lucci plays the role of Anne in the audiobook, and given her age, her relationship with Anne of Green Gables is not going to be the same as like the millennials and Gen Xers who who grew up watching you or you know you know being taught the book in school and stuff like that. So and Anne, what conversations do you have with her about it? I, you know, Michaela did a beautiful job. One of the things that Michaela had to do even more so than me from a text standpoint is it's Herculean. I mean, Anne obviously never shuts up. Um, <laughs> you know, she talks and talks. And the biggest thing that I found, which is, you know, is really, you know, thank God for someone. I mean, Michaela's again been working for a long time and she's very accomplished but was reminding her that the rights and freedoms that she has as a young person and as a young woman didn't exist before. And we can kind of say that and it it becomes abstract until you're really looking at text and material and you're saying lines and you're recognizing the consequence of a character saying something or of other characters in the town judging you or the truth of what you're up against. So that was an interesting, um, the feminist in me would find myself having to say, let's take a moment because this isn't just about, we're not just talking about, I've always wanted to be a bride or the reason you want to be that is that if you are not that one day, you are nothing. And then we can laugh because we're, we're walking down a road and and that's what Lucy Maud, that's what she's navigating. So it was really, um, it's really important to put that in a context. You have you have such passion for this character, so much thought around this character. You have so much experience. In some ways, like I'm sure, sure, like shared trauma of this character. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm sure. And you have to sit down with with Michaela and guide her. I'm just trying to imagine that in my mind. You know. You can look at Anne and her speeches, and it can appear daunting because they do go on, but she's not, you know, it's not that Anne is a compulsive talker. There's a reason why she's talking. And it usually comes out of something very dark, a moment where real darkness is presented and a choice to go towards the light. But going towards the light isn't done out of naivety. It's done out of survival. So you have a little girl who's has to comes to a train station at 11. And back then we have to understand children traveling alone, girls traveling alone, it's dangerous. And she is waiting to be picked up. And she has that speech about, you know, I I saw that, I I made up my mind to climb up that cherry tree and sleeping it all silvery in the moonshine. Well, you're gonna climb up a tree to get safety. You're gonna climb up a tree and find something beautiful and focus in on the beauty of a blossom or something because you're, terrified to be left alone or abandoned in a world. And it's done with poetry because children actually don't speak that way. That's where it really is the author, the woman, reflecting back and, uh, and uh, giving this voice, this channel of something, I think. Uh, and then, it, and because of that, it had our listening. I mean, Anne was beloved by many people, including Mark Twain in his day, uh, Earl Grey, uh, the King of England. I mean, there were people who it touched deeply because, and it was sort of shocking. 
I want to um, I want to play a clip from the audiobook. So this is from episode four. It's one of the most essential scenes from any adaptation of Anne and Green Gables. So this is where Anne accidentally gets her bosom buddy Diana wasted off of what they think is raspberry cordial is actually currant wine. Take a listen. Mrs. Lynn was up to see Mrs. Barry today, and Mrs. Barry was in an awful state. She says that I set Diana drunk on Saturday and sent her home in a disgraceful condition. She says I must be a thoroughly bad, wicked little girl. And she's never, never going to let Diana play with me again. Set Diana drunk. (laughs) And are you or Mrs. Barry crazy? What on earth did you give that girl? Not a thing but raspberry cordial. Megan, what was it like revisiting scenes like that one? Like, did it put you in mind of doing the the the, the series back in '85? Yeah, <laughs> I mean they are <laughs> absolutely. It's so fun listening both to Michaela and Catherine O'Hara. I I, I could listen to uh, her voice. <laughs> what a what a thrill it was for me. I mean, it's outrageous. I, I will have to say, I remember that uh, Skylar Grant, who played Diana Barry, they had given her, I think. It was a watered-down form of grape juice, maybe even Ribena. Ugh, yeah. yeah. So I think by the time she guzzled the fourth glass, she really lost it. We, she ran off of that set and was vomiting <laughs> into a garbage can. We, we have it. Just, just take a listen. Where's the matter, Diana? Uh, she's drunk. And Shirley, what did you give my Diana to drink? Only raspberry cordial, Mrs. Berry. Cordial, my foot. The girl smells like Jake Griffith's distillery. I, lo- I love that she maybe maybe she was actually sick just from drinking so much Ribena at that point. Yeah. That's um, from the 1985 miniseries Anne of Green Gables. Uh, my guess is Megan follows the director of the new Canadian Audible original Anne of Green Gables. She also played Anne Shirley in the 1985 miniseries Anne of Green Gables. Can we talk a little bit about those those days back when you were a teenager? I, I hear you had your heart set on and talk to me about the uh, audition. Oh, um, I did. I mean, I was one of the first uh, people early on uh, to read for Anne. I had just done Hockey Night. I played uh, Kathy Yarrow, the, the, the only girl on the boys team, the goalie. And um, then they went across country to kind of find Anne in a, in a field or however they thought they were going to really discover someone. I'd already been working quite a bit. I'd started at nine um, or younger. Yeah. You were saying you were doing radio dramas here, right? Yeah. With the CBC. Cool. Loved it. Yeah. One of my first jobs. Uh, And then the opportunity, I think they saw these, I mean, they claimed about 3000 girls. um, And you have to remember this is pre self tape time. So they were, they were going across the country and um, they hadn't settled on it yet or couldn't, weren't in agreement. So I got another opportunity to go in. And I remember I was down in Los Angeles. I'd been working uh, on a show that Martin Mull uh, played my dad in. Steve Martin was executive producer. It was a sitcom. Um, so it was a completely different world, as had been Hockey Net. I was a contemporary teenager. And then I just remember, you know, reading that script again. And as I said, those roles are very rare they're few and far between and just loving it and I was not a kid who grew up reading the books so which in my case probably was a saving grace because I didn't have a preconceived idea she wasn't anybody but me to you to me meaning 
she wasn't any, I didn't have to, you know, overcome yeah. something to, to say, oh, I want this. I, I'd love to do this. We, I think we have a bit of your audition tape, don't we? Can we, can oh, we, God, can, can, don't you have? Oh, uh, yeah. Any sense. Have a listen to this. <laughs> I suppose you're Mr. Matthew Cuthbert. My name is Anne Shirley, spelled with an E. I was beginning to be afraid you weren't going to come for me today. So I made up my mind to climb up that cherry tree and wait for you till morning. Wouldn't that be lovely? And to sleep in a cherry tree all silvery in the moonshine? Wouldn't it? I mean, that's that's the danger of doing uh, the CBCs. We have access to all these things. What did we just hear? Um, I think you heard you heard the audition, and it's funny. I did it a couple times. I I was not the first choice for this role. There was someone else that was wanted, so I had to fight for it. And I had luckily um, some advocates at the CBC uh, at the time. Nada Harcourt was one, and uh, someone at PBS who actually thought and believed that I was. I was um, the way to go, so I will always be incredibly grateful. Do you remember anything? Do you remember anything about the day of the audition? I sure do. Um, I remember that I went to an office and um, basically did most of the audition. My mom took me down. There was a camera. Um, there was the um, writer, the the director, producer Kevin Sullivan. They basically, I was put in a room and had to do the speech. I had to do that. I think I had to do the buggy ride and the death, you know, like huge pieces. But basically, I was left alone in the room with the camera. Uh, no one was behind it. And I I did it. And it took many hours to do it. Then um, I was going back to California the next day and we got a call and mysteriously something was wrong with the tape and if I wanted that job I had to come back in and I had 45 minutes to get down there do it and get on a plane so my mom and I looked at it and went let's, let's go let's do it <laughs> so I went down again and I did it and um you're kidding yeah. me no what happened what, did you ever find out? I have no idea. I mean, I have my own thoughts about it. I can tell. I, I was not, I was not uh, who was wanted in that role. So uh, it was one I had to fight for. How was, how was filming it? Filming it was amazing, I will say. Certainly, particularly the first one was a really um, extraordinary. Um, I mean, we shot it very quickly for, you know, in those days. We shot it on 16 millimeter, single camera. We didn't have a lot of rules back then, so I was working full days. Oh. Um, I remember we only had Richard Farnsworth for six days, so all of his stuff was done. So a lot of my work, masters and his close-ups would be done, and then we'd come back a month later, and I'd have to do major scenes on my own to uh, a grip stand with a hat on it and different, you know, all the all the things behind like what what we don't know, you that, know. That's I should say um, he played Matthew Cuthbert, but like that's that's quite a cha- that's quite a challenge for young actors when I'm here and there. I was hugely challenging. Our first day, the very first day I met Matthew, I did I think three scenes: the train station, the buggy ride, and his death scene. Were you exhausted? I was absolutely exhausted by the end of it because it was twelve to fourteen hour days. There was no, you know, I was. I was exhausted, but I loved it. I have to say, meaning I, I was, uh, it was a happy place for me. I had, I was extraordinarily lucky with someone like Colleen Dewhurst, you know. Again, you know, abroad of the stage, you know, a woman that was very grounded. She was beautiful. Pat Hamilton, 
uh, who you heard is Rachel and saying that line about the brewery, you know, she was unbelievable. And Richard Farnsworth was absolutely beautiful as well. And of course, the, uh, in my heart, um, always smiles and uh, Jonathan Crombie, you know, we, we laughed a lot. I'm about to ask you what I'm guessing might be a very loaded question. Um, take me back to December of 85, you're 16 or 17. The miniseries airs on CBC TV. It is a massive success in terms of ratings. It sweeps the Gemini's, but just it, it just takes off. How does your life change after that? Oh, well, you know, it's a really fascinating thing. Um, it changes in some ways in a big way and, and, then, and then doesn't change in others and then uh, is absolutely reflective of another kind of journey and experience that I, I've become aware of. Um, you know, Canada is a very different place for um, stardom. English Canada, I'm, I will say. I think the French Canada has a very different system, yeah. and I think they support their actors, um, and there's a much closer relationship to their audience and their own uh, people reflected in that. So television in the 80s was, you know, it's about to change, right? Within 10 years, there's a, a stigma around television is going to flip, and, and it's going to have a very different power behind it. Oh, at this time, television was seen as sort of lesser than film? It, it, I mean, there was a snobbery. There was a division. Okay. Most definitely, okay. Right. And yeah. of course, the irony is that's going to completely turn. Yeah. Completely turn, as it should have. Yeah. Um, and other countries weren't like that, because I don't think Britain was ever no. like that. But in Canada, and we were in the shadow of the United States. So um, it changes in some ways, and then in another becomes... Um, in true odd Canadian fashion, an apology one is asked to make for doing something well and succeeding in it. You felt like you had, you were you were made to feel like you had done something wrong by succeeding, or you were you were you were your your success had gotten too big and you were sort of looked down upon. I think we didn't know what to do with that. We didn't know how to. I think it was a newer phenomenon. Yeah. Um, I think the power of that character scares people. I yeah. think she's an extraordinary, uh, and it, she scares people because, and she's certainly at the time for a system that was run by men who didn't know how to, you know, how do you turn that into something that becomes the appendage to, to the other driving forces? For me, it, it's something I can reflect back upon and recognize now, if that makes sense. Did did it affect your walk down the street ability? Did it affect yeah. your yeah? Yeah, I'm. I will say I've always been incredibly grateful for two things. One, I feel I did it well, thank God, because that had, that had been worse. <laughs> um, it I I have a received a tremendous amount of goodwill from people because of what the character, because of what the writing means to people. Yeah. And and that has been um never ceases to surprise me how deep that character resonates. And it doesn't matter where I go in the world, I've had that experience. Uh and as I said I've had it from uh men, I've had it from women, I've had it from old, young, I've had it from all different uh religions, races. It's a very powerful story. So I have gratitude for that. 
I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. More of my conversation with Megan Follows coming up. Are vegans actually unhealthy? Does cannabis ruin your sleep? And why are so many men taking testosterone supplements? I'm Mitch. And I'm Greg. And we're the creators of the popular YouTube channel, ASAP Science. Every week on our podcast, Side Note by ASAP Science, we explain the science behind a controversial subject with recent research, up-to-date studies, and ridiculous stories so you are entertained while, bam, simultaneously learning. We're here to make science make sense. Download Side Note by ASAP Science wherever you got your podcasts. I'm Tom Power. Welcome back to Q. You're in the middle of my conversation with Megan Follows, who played Anne Shirley on the 1985 CBC and PBS miniseries Anne of Green Gables. So before we took a break there, Megan was telling me about how she feels really connected to Anne still. And she was talking about how radical Lucy Maud Montgomery was, especially for her time. I mean, that's that's the person who wrote the books. Megan is the director of the new Audible audiobook, Anne of Green Gables. But as you're about to hear, she's currently working on another project involving the life and work of Lucy Maud Montgomery. And we, we're going to talk a little bit about that. But also... How the fame that came after playing Anne became so overwhelming, why she decided to start directing after all that fame died down, and Megan's daughter is a writer and an actor now, so what advice does she give her? But we started out with something we dug and dusted off from the CBC archives. I got, I got one more clip and you're off the hook with clips, I promise. Uh-oh. You know, it seems to me that it may be replayed every year for the next 50 years. Are you, are you conscious of that, that in 50 years you may be the Judy Garland? Of, uh, <laughs> right. almost, you're going to be Dorothy almost. Well, it's such a classic story that it, it should be in that sense. As a, just the story itself is one that can be heard forever. So um, Does that bother you at all that you may at, at 50 see yourself at no, the age of 17? No, I, I, I'm very proud of the work that I did and that everybody did. And uh, I think we have a lot to show for it. Mm. So I think it's great. So that clip is from you and CBC host Peter Downey on Midday. That clip is from the week before the show aired originally. It hasn't been quite 50 years, but 40 years later. What do you make of that, which you just heard? Well, thank God I'm not like Judy Garland. I'm still alive. So first takeaway, I'm, I didn't uh, become addicted to pills um, and drink myself to death. You know, I, got, I got away. I still have my life. Um, I take it away, you know, one of the projects that I'm developing personally now, and I'm happy to say I am, I'm in development with, is uh, a limited series based on the life of Lucy Maud Montgomery. And that is, uh, I'm extremely excited and uh, about this and the exploration of this woman and her legacy and the power of her writing and the kind, the institutions that were really out towards the end, out to get her to minimize the contribution that she made, continues to make, and the impact she has. So I find this. Um, I, I always thought it was so interesting that you know you could do something incredibly well, it would have an extraordinary impact, and depending on who would ask you, the question would be, oh. Are you afraid? And I, you know, pardon me, go, no, why? Afraid of what? Afraid of it, you know, of always being thought that way or being defined by something. The beautiful thing about Anne is she's multifaceted. So I always felt that um, 
as I said, you could you can't you can't put her into a a whole a box. That that being said, um, the next stage of your career is is interesting to me. I mean, for uh, from 2013 to 2017, you started in the TV show Rain, and that's where you started doing directing work. And now we're here to talk to you a little bit about your directing work in this new Audible original event of Green Gables. Everything you've been talking to me about, well, some of the things you've been talking to me about, whether it be Lucy Maud Montgomery's voice within the publishing industry at the time, whether it be Anne's voice in the context of characters at the time, whether it be your voice in this miniseries versus the kind of Canadian television and film at the time, it all seems to be coming down to the idea of control, that there are there are forces and there are people controlling things and that you and, and Lucy and Anne are resisting that control. What I find interesting about this period of your life is by going behind the camera, is it a little bit of you saying, I can take control here? Absolutely. I think it, yeah, most definitely. I have a couple of loves. I always um, loved photography. So I've always been a very visual person. I just, I think in a, in a kind of visual and editorial way. Yeah. It's the way my brain works. Um, so getting behind the camera allowed me to put that expression uh, into story and tone. Yeah. It, and more so than about control. I mean, I think the truth is it's really, uh, and it's insidious. There are societal expectations and pressures on people and particularly i think uh on the ideal or idea of what femininity is and what womanhood looks like and what sexuality looks like and where your power lies and who likes you and i just feel for young people now with like 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 the freedom to make a mistake there's such a we're, we're under the microscope but we the truth is we always have been it's perhaps more obvious in a way, oh, can be yeah. very insidious. Wow, so. yeah, yeah, yeah. Your daughter is a, a an actor and a, and a writer. Yeah. Do you give her advice as she navigates this industry? I mean, I try, um, and I, you know, I, you know, know uh, <laughs> the feelings um, of the hurts and the frustrations and then just the celebration. So I could never be a hypocrite and, uh, not want my children or my daughter to to go into a field that ultimately, you know, brings me such tremendous love. I have to say, uh, love for something, even when it hurts. It's like a bad relationship. It's like I can't give I can't give it up, Tom. <laughs> Again, it hurts me so bad. What, what do you what back for more? So what? So, so what? So what do you tell her? Well. I'll tell it. I'll tell you the main thing. And again, this comes back to the just. I have this extraordinarily talented, beautiful, five foot ten daughter, and I tell her, "Be true to yourself." Um, we're always going to be judged in this business. It's trying not to take it personally when what's on the line is your personhood. It's very complicated, and and as and it's the advice that my mother gave me, which is don't let the get you down because they'll try you know you just have to you have to find that safe place to 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 where you can get out your your grievances and your pains and and then pick yourself up and go and um 
I feel very fortunate to um, have family that understands kind of what we what we do, even when it makes no sense whatsoever. Um, and my daughter is a wonderful writer. I'm working with her on a project too, and she's developing her own work. Um, we love storytelling. We love stories. I think that at their best, and particularly now in, in this world, which is so crazy, there's so much anxiety for young people. There's so much fear and there's so much bravery required and courage. And storytelling is a great place we're not necessarily going to find answers but we're going to have the right to ask questions and i think that is critical for all of us and really certainly saved my life as a person many times as a young person as a young woman and going through painful divorces and anything the world was going to throw at me coming back to a good story to sit in and tell and participate in was was huge um, I, I, I've learned, I mean, I sort of went into this conversation today with this sort of like uh, thought uh, playing around or being tossed around in the back of my head about the the endurance fan of Green Gables and, 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 and me and our, our producer, Corey, here, we're talking a lot about it today. I really appreciate you sharing with us today like, just how much you've considered it. You've given me so much to, to think about and I, I love talking to you. Thanks so much for making the time. Oh, you're so, so welcome. I'm, I spend a lot of time in many places and out in the Maritimes too. And I have an old farmhouse and I just listen to the radio a lot. So you're with me in the kitchen a lot. <laughs> and I love it. So yeah, now that I actually get to see your face. It's, uh... You can say it. It's a disappointment. Uh, no, no, more than one could ever. Cherry blossoms, moonbeams and sunshine. I feel like cherry blossoms, moonbeams, and sunshine is something I'd say if someone asked me how my day was going and I was having a bad day. They were like, hey, Tom, how's your day going? Oh, yeah, it's pretty good. Everything is just cherry blossoms, moonbeams, and sunshine. Megan Follows is a Canadian actor and director. She's the director of the Canadian Audible original uh, Anne of Green Gables, which is starring Michaela Lucci, Catherine O'Hara, Victor Garber, and S- Victor Garber and Sandra Oh. It's out now on Audible. Um, And that's it for us today. The other conversation we have up today is uh, my conversation with the Trans-Canada Highwaymen. Uh, It's Chris Murphy. See if I can do this off the top of my head. Chris Murphy from Sloan, Craig Northey from the band Odds, Mo Berg from Pursuit of Happiness, and Stephen Page, formerly of of Bare Naked Ladies. So, you know, Canadian rock icons who made an album in tribute to their Canadian rock icons and kind of KTEL records. Have a listen to that interview and, and tell me if I sound a little verklempt. Tell me if I sound a little... Someone has, You know, we were talking about this the other day. I was born in 87, so the, the music that these guys made, very foundational to me of like what I thought, you know, rock and roll was, you know, in the 90s when I was watching TV. They were all over much music. They were all over the radio. As cool as I try to be, I still feel like I get a little... I get a little quiet around those dudes. It still mean a lot to me. Anyway, a really interesting conversation. Go check that out. We'll see you soon. Later on. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.